So, Jay, Cannonball is an external, right? Maybe. They've gone back and forth on it a few times over the years, Miles. The death and resurrection stuff, though, that's gotta be pretty rare, right? <laughs> Seriously? In superhero comics? I know, I know, but it usually doesn't happen that fast. Yeah, point. Do all the externals have an origin story like that? More or less. Some of them are less colorful than others. I'm curious about Gideon's. I mean, he's the ninja badass of the ninja badasses. Oh, Gideon? Uh, he died from... Something awesome, right? Scurvy. What?! I'm Jay Edidin. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 205 of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. And welcome to you, Jay, to being back in the United States. Thank you. Um, I had a really good trip. Latveria was really, really lovely. I only ended up staying there for a day and a half because we got deported really fast, but um, Europe was nice otherwise, too. I'm surprised they deported you. Usually they just exile or imprison you. Yeah, so apparently they have a fairly strict policy about gratuitous makeouts on public monuments. I can see that, yeah. I feel like if you make out with the public monument that is, of course, Doom himself represented, then that's allowed. Maybe, but anyway, so they, they and apparently this is a common enough problem that they had, they had a plane with like a bunch of us on it, and they told us that they were sending us to a den of sin and iniquity better suited to libertines. Um, which we sort of assumed they were just going to kill us or something, but uh, then we landed in Belgium. Huh, I would have figured Madripoor. Yeah, um, I'm not sure where the whole Den of Sin and Iniquity thing came out of, but Belgium was lovely and there were very good waffles. Man, I could go for some waffles right now. But instead we have X-Force. I also got a lot of French-language Marvel comics, which was extremely entertaining, both because we found a really terrific comic shop, which reminds me, if you are in Brussels, Utopia Comics is terrific. It's one of very few comic shops there that actually specializes in superheroes. Most of them are, are European bandesines, which are great, but very much their own thing um, as distinct. And they are lovely, and they are super, they are queer and trans friendly, and they're just a generally terrific shop. But they had a sale on, on trades and collections, and so I, I scored some kind of amazing stuff. But the most important thing that I learned is that in French, Doom is fatalise. That's pretty badass, but I remember you also telling me about Sabretooth's French name, and that makes me happy, too. Right. Danse du Sabre. Yeah, yeah, it's not very threatening. It sounds sort of polite. I don't know, I mean, my, my French classes uh, stopped in about ninth grade, so maybe I'm missing some connotation. Um, I can, French is, is among several languages that I can sort of stumble through when I'm reading it and cannot speak with anything approaching fluency or, you know discernible accent, so. Well, if we're ever attacked by Dante Sabra, we'll be very bad at begging for our lives. Not that that usually tends to work anyway. Yeah, I, I do know how to say I would like a Liege waffle, please. That's the most important thing. That was the phrase I really actually needed on this trip. Um, no, so interestingly, Belgium has has basically a French half and a Flemish half, Wallonia and Flanders, and they're sufficiently grumpy about being parts of the same country that the lingua franca and a lot of the nation, because of that, is English. Okay, because that way you're not, like, aligning yourself with the enemy or whatever. Or, yeah, or you're not having to acknowledge, you know, the francophone or the, the 
you know, Dutch speaking portions of the country. It is a marvelous world. It's really interesting. It's also really uncomfortably nostalgic about imperialism. Hmm. Well, well, that's unfortunate. What is fortunate, and I can't believe I'm saying this about Next Force episode, is some of the comics we're going to be covering today. Right! Oh my gosh! So this episode, we're going to be covering the arc of X-Force, where basically it goes from the book where Fabian Nisseza is scripting the one where he's writing plot. And as a result of that, and a re- as a result of some great guest art from Terry Shoemaker, who we'll talk about more in a bit... It's the point where X-Force really actually starts to feel like a good sequel to Classic New Mutants. Exactly. And my first time through, I didn't really make it to this point because my collection didn't cover this transition point. You know, I picked it up um, basically when Cable was already gone and X-Force was already kind of a New Mutant sequel. And so the resentment I had was one born in part of ignorance because I didn't see the part where X-Force in that specific regard redeems itself, where it gets back that heart that it's been missing for, I mean, to be fair, only like a year, but still... And to everyone's surprise, that heart is, in fact, Richter. Oh, Richter. He's so great. He got a little mustache recently. I'm never going to stop talking about that. Uh, no, he is, he is a good kid. He has some amazing outfits in this arc as well. Um, and Sunspot also ends up back on the team. So we are, we are really, really go, turning hard back to the, the old New Mutants lineup and also to a lot of the old dynamics in, in good ways. Speaking of old things, previously on X-Force... The team is currently made up of Cable, Domino, Cannonball, Boom Boom, Warpath, Shatterstar, Feral, and Siren. They are currently living in an old Sentinel base, complete with its own kinda sorta danger room. And they've just finished an extended fight with a newly formed Brotherhood of Evil Mutants. In the process, they killed Sauron and the Morlock leader Mask, and discovered, apparently, that Cannonball is something called an external. The externals, also known as the High Lords, it's funnier if you emphasize it that way, they're a handful of immortal mutants, and that includes the top-knotted businessman Gideon, who had secretly orphaned and then took in the former new mutant Sunspot, thinking Sunspot was the newest external, when in fact it was his best bro, Cannonball. Another former new mutant, Richter, has shown up on the scene, not with X-Force at this moment, but Richter is mad at Cable, because he believes that Cable killed his father. Um, and so as a result of that, he has, turned, he has joined up with another group that is going to shortly be facing off against X-Force. We also, antagonist-wise, have the villainous, mysterious trench coat aficionado, Mr. Tolliver, and his obscure henchman that nobody ever remembers, Deadpool. Oh, that's Deadpool? I thought it was Spider-Man. I just figured it was Deathstroke the Terminator, but what do I know? I mean, same difference, really. Anyway, um, S.H.I.E.L.D. is also after X-Force, and in this case, they are currently headed up by a guy named G.W. Bridge, who is one of Cable's former comrades from his old mercenary group. Also, also, we found out somewhat recently that Cable is, in fact, as listeners to this podcast and many X-Fans already know— the child of Cyclops and Madeline Pryor, who was sent into the future and spent a long time time traveling around and being a mercenary and being very gruff and having a glowy robot eye. Uh, the baby, not Madeline. Yes, just to be clear. I mean, the baby didn't get all that stuff, this, the mercenary group, the robot eye, until he was a little bit less of a baby. A little bit less of a baby. At least in this timeline. That's right. So, with that background information in place, let's go ahead and jump into 
actually a couple of issues. We're going to be talking about X-Force number 11, Friendly Reminders, and X-Force number 12, Traitors to the Cause, sort of simultaneously. Well, in general, we're going to be talking about this arc as an arc rather than as individual issues for the most part, with a couple call-out exceptions, which we'll talk about when we get to them. But first, we've got X-Force 11 and 12, and these are both plotted by Rob Liefeld with scripts by Fabian Nicesa, pencils by Mark Pacella, inks by Dan Pinozian, and Pacella is very, very Liefeldy. He kind of almost feels like, a, well, he, he feels like what you get if you learn to draw Liefeld style. The thing is, Pacella doesn't always draw that way. We saw him in X-Factor number 81 doing some fill-in art, and I thought he was pretty good in that. It's pretty clear he's trying to ape the style that readers are used to with this book, which, fair enough, but I gotta say, it does not really work for me. No, and it doesn't really work for him either. And we're going to start seeing more and more exceptions to that within the book. Now, in these issues, we're also seeing Liefeld's last cover with the cover for number 11 and Liefeld's last plotting with the plot to number 12. We've been working on finishing up the image exodus period. And sure enough, this is another one of its last gasps before we are all on post-image folks. Before we get into the story proper we get a bit of posturing. X-Force, led by Cable, heads through the sewers into the Morlock tunnels, specifically to make a point. And with them, they have masks severed, um, cloak. Cloak. Yeah, cloak. And uh, Sauron's corpse, which has to be uh, pretty heavy to drag around. Sauron is not a small dinosaur. And also um, Thorn, who is fine and alive and just chained up, um, who who they have, they have brought to parade before the Morlocks, to say don't fuck with us again which is an interesting contrast actually to the the version of the morlocks who we saw in the last x-men arc yeah i mean it's still that very monstrous very muscular collection of mostly male morlocks but it's certainly a different take on them so where do they go from there well, from here, we have a number of plot lines that are going to thread back and forth between number 11 and 12. What do you say we start with the Domino stuff? All right. Now, as we've mentioned before, when we say Domino, when we're talking about the Domino who's running around with X-Force right now, we're not actually talking about Domino. We're talking about a character named Copycat who is currently posing as Domino. Copycat's first name is Vanessa. That may be familiar if you've seen the Deadpool movies. That's the same character that's Deadpool's girlfriend in the movies, except without all the shape-shifting and villainy and super spiness. Really, it's just the same name. And at X-Force headquarters, someone with suspiciously yellow captions watches Shatterstar danger room it up. Um, is it... Spider-Man? No, I'm pretty sure, once again, it's Deathstroke the Terminator. Okay, I mean, I know it's supposed to be a parody, like Wade Wilson, Slade Wilson, similar outfits, vaguely similar character concepts, but but goddammit, the fact that Deadpool got so big as a parody character, I don't know, I guess the Ninja Turtles got big as parody characters, I guess it's yeah. fine. Wait, I thought, I thought Deathstroke was fairly serious. Well, right, but Deadpool being a parody of. Anyway, not content merely to caption at the reader, Deadpool also talks to himself. I'm here to smack some sense into Vanessa, not jerk around with Cable's diaper brigade. But accidentally running into the Irish witch proved to be fun. Because Deadpool has knocked out Siren, but dude, you guys are gonna date later. Be nice. And now I got this little interdimensional punk showing off for an audience he doesn't even know is watching. Ah, I'm such a sucker for a good brawl. 
remember, Deadpool isn't really going to be the Deadpool that people know and love until Joe Kelly starts writing him. He, Deadpool was a very popular character in this era, but the whole goofy anti-hero fourth wall breaking Joker, like, that's not this guy. Although speaking of parodies and Ninja Turtles specifically, with a cowabunga dude, Deadpool takes out Shatterstar and finds Domino, who's reading aloud from very basic computer files about X-Force's members. There is a great big fight. Deadpool is apparently here because Domino, which is to say Copycat, which is to say Vanessa, although that's not clear to the reader at this point, hasn't checked in lately with her boss, Mr. Tolliver. And we should note, if you're primarily familiar with Deadpool from the movies, this isn't quite the same Vanessa, they just have the same name. So after a, an uncomfortable conversation in which Deadpool confirms that Vanessa is in fact falling for Cable, um, he warns her that she in fact belongs to Tolliver and had better remember, and storms out. Speaking of Mr. Tolliver, he's in a castle in Austria, not Belgium or Latveria, wearing his usual trench coat and fedora, the traditional garb of his villainous people. He and his assistant, Pico, who we're meeting for the first time, but isn't really worth talking about because he just dies really quick, go down to a prison where the actual Domino has been for over a year. Bum, bum, bum. She's in those weird things we've talked about before. Like, they look like jet turbines, but they go over your hands and your feet when you're being held in super technological shackles. I guess they're supposed to stop your mutant powers. I don't know. Do you ever get the vague feeling that Tolliver and everyone who works for him were sort of imported from Dick Tracy comics? Yeah, yeah, I mean, there's the trench coat and fedora, but I don't know, I feel like he would have to have more of a more of a shtick to be a Dick Tracy character, like some exaggerated facial feature or something like that. Wait, wait, he could be multi-teeth! He was originally drawn by Rob Liefeld. And he does still have a lot of teeth. Perfect. Speaking of, uh, I guess, also people who probably have teeth... Or possibly imports from other classic comic strips, because we're moving on to Gideon. And Gideon, when he shows up in this arc, is dressed in an absolutely amazing outfit that really looks like he stole it from an Alex Raymond Flash Gordon strip. Right? Like, I actually clipped the panel to put it in our notes just so we could look at it while we talk about it. It's resplendent. It is. So I'm going to start, they're not the flashiest part, but with his boots, which look like he just wrapped giant strips of meat over and over around his calves and ankles and feet. They're just like big barbarian boots, and they don't really fit anything else, but they're wonderful. So he's wearing a leotard, and the bottom half of it is red. The top half of it, at least up to its tiny cap sleeves, is pink with big, um, big, big gold pauldrons kind of but they're sort of they're they're space style pauldrons in little circles and he's he's got randomly gold arms and like teal gloves anyway he looks it amazing is... just check out the visual companion to this episode because honestly no description can do this outfit justice you'll see what i mean as far as it being extremely alex raymondy i have a theory jay mm -hmm. so you know how gideon's power is that he can absorb the abilities of anybody he's fighting yeah I think he fought some peacocks on the way to the office. So he can make horrible noises and obstruct traffic? Oh, I'm pretty sure that's what he does between panels, yeah. I mean, he might just do that in general for fun. And he's, he's the, the guy who he's gone to Madriport to meet up with. Oh yeah, he's also just wearing this in Lowtown Madriport. Like, this is, this is just his day-to-day -day outfit. Um, and the guy he's worn this to meet is named Cruel, spelled C-R-U-L-E. And this is a purple genie looking motherfucker 
he's an external and he's wearing red boxer shorts and a belt made of tiny human skulls, slightly larger than the tiny human skulls in Mystique's belt, if that's what you were about to ask. No, he actually reminds me more of Dalzim from Street Fighter. Like the tiny shorts, the bald head, the belt of tiny skulls. He looks like purple Dalzim. I, I gotta say, also, so I recently saw the Street Fighter movie for the first time. I have no idea how it took me this many years to actually see it. Dalzim is possibly the most disappointing part of a movie with a lot of disappointing parts. Wait, the live action one? Oh, yeah. Oh, because I was going to say we definitely, we've definitely seen the animated one before. Oh, that's pretty great. The live action part? Okay, so you know how Roadhouse goes from being like an ironically good movie to a genuinely good movie whenever Sam Elliott is on screen? Yeah. With the Street Fighter movie, every time Raul Julia is on screen, that's what happens. Like, he just deliciously devours every iota of scenery, and it's wonderful, and then it goes back to Van Damme just being on coke a lot. Oh, fuck. That was the movie that was so bad it killed Raul Julia, wasn't it? I'm afraid so. I'm afraid so. And may he rest in peace. Damn. Well, anyway, um, going back to X-Force, uh, and Cruel, who is, is, is somewhat like Dalzim, but is, is bright purple, at, at one point they fight, and Kru I, I just want to include this, that Cruel yells during the fight, Cruel rules! I mean, Cruel does kind of rule, he's not wrong, and there's a wonderful little bit of rhyme in there, so why not? No, Cruel is an asshole, and Cruel definitely worked for the Nazis during World War II, which gets mentioned sort of offhand and then never brought up again. Oh, I forgot that part. Yeah, okay, fuck you, Cruel, although your fashion sense is nonetheless impressive. Yeah, this fight is also preceded by some very intense narration about how Gideon and Cruel are married, but they're not really married, but they're kind of married. And the general gist of it kind of leads me to believe that Gideon does not actually realize that marriage is not the only familial relationship that exists. I gotta say, a lesser writer would have backed out of that monologue halfway through upon realizing that it didn't quite work. Nicieza is no such lesser writer. Press on, my friend, press on. Yeah, man, he just he just kind of grabs that that weird stallion and rides for all it's worth. Well, anyway, Gideon is here, as he had talked to some other externals about in a previous issue, to get Cruel to go and hunt down Cable because he's a jerk. I think initially Cruel was supposed to hunt down Cannonball, but eh, continuity, let's not worry too much about it. Well, Cruel eventually does hunt down Cannonball. He doesn't go after Cable. But here, at least, nominally, he's going after Cable. This is a common problem in this era of X-Force, where names that are similar just get switched around a lot between issues and storylines. It's true. But eventually, their fighting makes them realize that they should be on the same side, and they go back to Gideon's place to check out his etchings. I mean, to beat the hell out of a Sunspot. That makes me sad. Yeah, they knock him out and then they yell at him, which seems like kind of the wrong order of things. They're upset because he's not an external. Um, it's super bogus, but it indirectly leads to him joining X-Force, so we'll give it a pass for now. And that brings us to Weapon Prime. Because meanwhile, on a S.H.I.E.L.D. helicarrier, G.W. Bridge is talking to Garrison Kane on a giant TV. Garrison Kane, of course, is the new Weapon X, despite having nothing to do with the old Weapon X, who has little hands that he can shoot off of his arms. Uh, he considers himself a Dalton Trumbo riff. We've covered this at length in a previous episode. Basically, he's wrong. 
Now, Kane reports that he just found out that Cable is the one under Strife's armor. Cable is leading the Mutant Liberation Front. And sure enough, the guy under Strife's armor and Cable do look pretty much identical. Kane hasn't really thought to uh, further question this resemblance. He just goes with it, tells S.H.I.E.L.D. about it, and he is ready for some fighting and vengeance and probably shooting his hands off again. So I think we need to talk about this this full full page spread conversation because this is this is quite a piece of artwork. Right? So there's Kane's face, which is like giant on this giant television in the background, as GW Bridge is like video chatting with him, but Bridge's legs and arms are seriously as big around as like two of my torsos put together, and he's just yelling his confusion about how Cable and Strife could possibly be the same dude. He's definitely also squatting like he is pooping. He is, and grimacing like it's a really painful one. So basically, it looks like in the background, the giant face of Garrison Kane is God divinely judging, like, Bridges' inability to have proper regularity. There is nothing like this page. I mean, okay, the 90s had a lot of questionable pages, but damn. This is a cosmology that my life to this point had really not adequately prepared me to consider. The world is a gigantic place, and we are but insignificant specks in the face of, well, Garrison Kane, I guess. So, anyway, what Garrison Kane is here to say is that Department K, oh, this should turn into a rap, and it's not going to, and I'm sorry. Um, Department K will take the case so that S.H.I.E.L.D. can st- stay covert. And in fact, they even have a new team set up for it called Weapon Prime. S.H.I.E.L.D. nominally agrees to this, but when Weapon Prime next appears, they're going to be introduced as a S.H.I.E.L.D. team, so maybe just sort of ignore this conversation. It's the 90s, full speed ahead nonetheless. Okay, so who is Weapon Prime as they are introduced in this 90-degree rotated double-page single-panel spread? Well, you've already met Garrison Kane, but alongside him is another character you've also met, and that is Richter, and Richter, um... Richter has quite an outfit, which which we see sort of the edges of here, and we'll see in its full glory next issue, but it's something. His hair's gotten longer, too. It actually kind of reminds me of my hair, but, you know, nicer, because it's in a comic book. It's it's there, and, and Richter, as we know, has had a mat on for Cable since New Mutants 89, because he thinks Cable is the guy who killed his father. And we, the readers, don't actually know that at this point. We will find that out this arc. Richter left the New Mutants in New Mutants number 98 to go rescue Wolfsbane from Genosa, which I guess he forgot about, because now he's here with these fine fellows, who also include... Oh, should we do the best one next? We should. Now, this is this is the only character you've never met before, who is, is introduced, who's brought in, created entirely for this storyline. This is Tiger Strike, spelled with two Ys. At the moment, it'll occasionally have Ys instead of Ys in future issues because again nothing is consistent here but right now it's t-y-g-e-r-s-t-r-y-k-e and he is covered in all the s-t-r-y-p-e-s like there's none left for anybody else they're sort of little triangles he's he's wearing kind of a speed skater looking suit presumably modeled on vindicators and um, he's he's got no other identifying characteristics um he is a he's a baseline human He's got a name. He, I don't know whether it's his first name or his last name. It's never actually been developed, but his name is Mitchell, so I picture him as being Joe Don Baker under the suit. Ma, 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 Mitchell. Yeah, so, um, and he's he's about as likable. 
Indeed. Then we have Yeti, or possibly Wendigo. See, that's the thing, this may be a new character, because in half the issues he's called Yeti, and in half he's called Wendigo, and I guess he looks like he could be Wendigo, but Wendigo also kind of just looks like a Yeti, so I don't know. Anyway, whichever he is, he looks like a Yeti, he's got some sweet gold jewelry and a loincloth that is positioned awkwardly. So that it looks like Kane and Tiger Strike, who are in the forehand, are each holding up a corner like some kind of a privacy drape over Yeti slash Wendigo's junk slash junk. That would make fight scenes so awkward and hilarious. They're also going to meet up with Grizzly, so at that point, we have Grizzly, Kane, and GW Bridge all as part of this organization. That's half of Cable's old mercenary group, the Six Pack, or the Wild Pack. They, they use both names. Yeah, and we don't really differentiate between the two. Now, this group has located X-Force's base, but it's an overnight trip, and in the middle of the night, Kane finds Richter posing dramatically in I th what I think was the outfit he was wearing before, but it's basically the shredded remains of a t-shirt hung around his neck, one pauldron, and jeans that are ripped to the point that they're kind of somewhere between hot pants and chaps. And um, it is the, the whole effect is very glam rock. You should carry something very low alcohol around with you when you're hanging out with Richter, because you basically have to be taking a drink every moment of every day. To cope with his glamness? To cope with how shredded his outfit is, and how shredded his muscles are! Well, unless it actually gets shredded on panel, you don't actually have to drink for that. It is continually shredding in a wonderful entropic and regenerative process. Really, it's a metaphor for the Order and Chaos and their glorious dance. Also possibly a secondary mutation. Maybe that. But that brings us to X-Force number 13. Everything hits the fan. And we have one big difference with this issue. We have Fabian Nicieza listed as the writer. Because now he is plotting and scripting. Liefeld's not on the book anymore. We are post-Liefeld. And this is the point where we start to see a major shift in tone and storyline. Yeah, this is actually where I start really liking this book. Now, don't get me wrong, the X-Force we've covered so far has been highly enjoyable. Like, I've really appreciated getting a chance to go through these comics, but this is where, like, I like it in my heart and not just in my enthusiasm and my sense of humor. Like, it's actually good from here on out. I mean, you know, here and there, not all the time. And we've got the same art team on this. We've still got um, Mark Pacella on pencils, Dan Pinojo on inks. Exactly. So in this issue, back at the ranch, which is to say back at, you know, X-Force's Sentinel base... They've figured out, they've caught Domino in the act. They realize that she's a traitor. Now, they don't realize she's not Domino. Right. Um, they know, they just know that she was working for Tolliver. I really like Domino's, okay, Vanessa's. God, this is getting confusing. I'm glad the storyline's going to be wrapped up soon. But I really like her captions as this all happens. The truth? They want the truth? What does that mean anymore? I've played the game in between the folds of truth and lie for so long I can't tell the difference. They look at me with surprise, anger, betrayal, Shatterstar, Cannonball, Warpath, Siren, Boom Boom, Feral. They look at me and wonder why. I dig the regret that's just right there in every syllable of Vanessa's dialogue, even when she's just talking to herself, especially when she's talking to herself, because think about it. I mean, yeah, she's a spy. Yeah, she's a mole. But she's been hanging out with these kids for a long time, and she's really gotten to care about them. That was why Deadpool was so pissed at her. Well, that and her falling in love with Cable. Under Cable's direction, she tells Tolliver that she's rigged the base to explode, after which... She's planned, she and Cable have planned that she'll lead X-Force to Tolliver. And 
X-Force is none too happy with having to move again, but as they'll soon find out, their base has been compromised already because as they're preparing to abandon it, Weapon Prime busts in. Okay, so Weapon Prime, it's like capital P-R-I-M-E. It seems like it's supposed to be an acronym, but I don't think we ever find out what it's an acronym of. Oh, I assume they just yell it every time they say it. That could be the case, like the, when Caps Lock is just your yelling voice. Also, wait a second, all of the all of the letters in in the text are capitals, Miles, it's a comic. Well, right, but you know, when you're on, like, the Marvel database or whatever, I just figured it was, I don't know, pornographically ripped industrious murder experts. I feel like there are a lot of options here. How long did it take you to come up with that? About 25 seconds. Okay. Well, here we have a glorious, not just a two-page spread, but a pair of two-page spreads. There's one two-page spread with Weapon Prime, and there's one with X-Force, and you're actually supposed to line them up. Somebody who was working for Marvel at the time, I forget if it was the editor or somebody else, said that you should really just buy two copies of the comic so you could see this four-page spread altogether. You will eventually see this principle carried to and past its logical conclusion in Promethea and somewhat um, more tongue-in-cheek next wave. Well, all the good guys and bad guys, or I guess good guys and other good guys, it's hard to say, pair off the and guys. fight. The guys. The uh, guys, including girls. Cable goes off and does some mysterious technological stuff we'll get to in a moment, but what I want to focus on here is the conversation and the confrontation between Cannonball and Boom Boom and Richter. I mean, this is their old bud. They've been on a team together for a very long time. And Richter still wants to turn them to the side of good, which, you know, we're used to seeing X-Force as the good guys, but I see where Richter's coming from. Don't either of you see? Look what Cable's done to you. Hunted outlaws. Living like terrorists. You've become everything we said we were going to fight against. And this is where it starts to feel a little more like New Mutants, and I love it. Anyway, where Cable has gone is to this sort of tech hub area that we haven't really seen before to meet with Professor, you know, the technological spirit of ship who went with young Nathan Christopher Summers to the future and who is now his own personal computer who teleports him around and stuff. And the professor begins teleporting all of X-Force's stuff out of here. God, that would be so much easier than moving. Moving sucks. Professor makes it way easier. Well, I mean, but you also have the sentient AI who, like, watches you poop. I feel like Professor's pretty non-judgmental. He's seen a lot, I'm just saying. He used to hang out with X-Factor for a long time. Yeah, but again, he used to hang out with X-Factor, so you think he's got any sense of what is and isn't appropriate to bring up in front of guests? Very good point. Well, what Professor also does, aside from teleporting out furniture and watching you poop, is setting the, the fake-out charges that we mentioned before to be keyed to Cable's voice activation so that Cable can blow the place up just as they're ready to retreat. At which point Cable rejoins the fight, covered in all the pouches and capsules and padding and scowls and guns that you could ever want. And he's also brought another one of his signature weapons, the baffling one-liner. You don't need a crystal ball to predict the obvious, GW. You and your little band are history. He and Strife both keep saying the crystal ball line. They just keep saying it. Like, were Slim and Red when they raised Nathan Christopher in the future really big fortune-telling aficionados? What the hell? Wait... Do we have our first Necessaism? I mean, we've seen that one before. I think it first showed up on the last page of the last issue of New Mutants, but Necessaism was scripting then. Can we can we accurately use this to describe the um, you know the, the the clone pair as as perhaps the Crystal Ballers? We can, and we must. But what happens next? Well, 
G.W. Bridge and Weapon Prime beg Cable not to turn the kids into people like him, which is an entirely reasonable thing to not want for a bunch of kids, and they insist to the kids that they've been duped by a man who is not what he seems. Remember, Weapon Prime all believe that Cable is strife. Also, they've worked with him for a long time, and they know he's kind of a dick. He's super a dick. He's not just kind of a dick. Well, X-Force does handily win the fight, nonetheless, when suddenly the charges detonate, like, way earlier than they were supposed to, separating Cable and Domino slash Vanessa from everybody else. And with only a moment before the charges go off, Cannonball realizes that there's only one thing he can do to save his team and as many of the intruders who are clearly well-meaning as possible, which is to try to expand his blast field to contain them all. Oh, Lord. What did he do this time? We'll never get out of here in time. X-Force, around me, quickly! Weapon Prime, you too! Hurry! Boom Boom, drop Richter if you have to! Lord, get over to me now! We don't have much! Boom, explosion, noises, etc. So, that's a hell of a cliffhanger, but we're not quite done with this issue yet, because in Sicily, Tolliver and Pico watch the news of X-Force's apparent death and toast with the real Domino, except she doesn't have any champagne because she is very heavily restrained in, like, these golden pipes and bands and machinery stuff, complete with individual little sort of cages for each of her breasts. It's kind of like industrial shibari, I don't know. Why did they have to put her breasts in cages? I mean, Domino's like a really skilled combatant. Who knows what she can do with those things? They do kind of look missily. There you go. Elsewhere, elsewhere, at Ofra Industries, which really looked like Oprah Industries to me at first, which I kind of believe. Oh, I know. I had to reread it like four or five times. I mean, it wouldn't surprise me if she had some kind of a secret underground science lab. That could be a thing. Honestly, of all of the major cultural figures who may or may not be running secret, like, massive interdimensional empires, Oprah is pretty much at the top of my list. Well, in this facility that Oprah may or may not own, Gideon, who has switched to a much more subdued sharp neon green electric fuchsia and midnight blue number, heads into this research facility where Sunspot, who's in more of those weird like extremity capsule turbine things, he's screaming as he's being bombarded with energy and stuff. They're doing horrible experiments on him. Listener, you should remember this right now. If you're ever hanging out with Gideon, don't disappoint him because then he'll just torture you to death. But nominally in the name of science and discovery, and it's kind of pointless, actually. Well, it'll nonetheless propel the plot forward directly into X-Force number 14, Payback. This is, again, written by Fabian Nesesa, but we've got a guest penciler. We've got Terry Shoemaker and um, guest inker Al Milgram with colors by Kevin Tinsley. And, man, Shoemaker is a really welcome break. He also feels like a really good thematic match for this point in the series, because we're taking a hard shift back to the themes and dynamics of the New Mutants. Yeah, and Shoemaker did a bunch of New Mutants villains back in the day, and so it feels like that both story-wise, emotionally, and artistically. It's glorious! And he's he's much more working in classic Marvel House style rather than, you know, Liefeld style, which, which again fits this point in the story and fits this thematic shift much, much better. So let's see how everyone fared after the explosion. We're going to look at Cable and X-Force in two separate groups because they will mostly be separated for a, a very long time. X-Force is largely on their own for the time being, again, in the tradition of the New Mutants. 
And this is such a good move for this book. It gives these kids a chance to adapt to the new paradigm, like, without being in the shadow of such a strong and well-armed personality. I also like the callback to one of my favorite old X-Men moments from way back in the day, when uh, Phoenix and Beast got separated from the rest of the X-Men after they fought Magneto and, I think, um, Uncanny 113. It's a hell of a lot like that. I mean, well, okay, Cable knows the new mutants are alive, that, that X-Force is alive, they just don't know that he is, necessarily. And he doesn't really give a fuck about telling them because he's a terrible parent. He's the worst dad. Well, actually, this is the Marvel Universe. He is among the top 35 worst dads. He does pretty well with Hope, but he's 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 not a good New Mutants dad. Anyway, we'll get to Cable and Vanessa um, in the next issue's worth of stuff, because they don't do much in this one. Let's see what happened to the rest of X-Force. They're okay. Uh, Cannonball, badass that he is, has successfully enlarged his blast field to encompass... Pretty much all of X-Force and most of Weapon Prime. There are a few Weapon Prime members missing, Grizzly and Tiger Beat. And, <laughs> uh, sorry, ti- Tiger Strike, Tiger Strife, Tiger, Tiger Beat. Let's go with, let's go with Tiger Beat. Yeah, I, I have to figure out how to fi- fit a Y into Beat at this point, but um, we'll get there. And then there are a few injuries, but everyone is mostly okay-ish. So X-Force steals Weapon Prime's fancy shield ship, convinces Richter to join up with them, and then takes off in a blaze of awesomeness. And we get this conversation um, with, with Garrison Kane, Richter, and then eventually Cannonball. Uh, as Kane begs Richter. Richter, don't do it, man. Don't go with them. You'll become an outlaw. And Richter replies. Kane, you've been cool with me, but I've always been one of them. If Cable's out of the picture, then that's the only thing I need to hear. I'm yours, Sam, if you want me. No need to even ask, Rick. Let's roll. Okay, I am not ashamed to admit that I actually kind of teared up at this point. God, me too! Like, everything that I missed from New Mutants is just coming back in little bits and pieces throughout these couple of issues. It feels like our kids again. It feels like that, like, emotionally honest and raw and just... uh, it's, It's got so much heart to it and... I know I'm a podcaster and I'm supposed to use words like as a podcaster, but I just want to sort of yell a lot and flail my arms at this part because it's so emotionally satisfying. It's such a relief. Here, I'll tell you what, buddy. You do the yelling and we can assume that the listeners will take the flailing as read. It's hard to do subtitles with podcasts is the only problem. But anyway, this part is wonderful and I'm so grateful for it. And this makes me so excited to be covering X-Force at this point. And again, having Shoemaker on art here is really critical. I don't know that this is a scene that either of the surrounding artists could have pulled off with the degree of emotional resonance that it really called for. Well, we don't get too much time to have feelings because as the the X-Force is deciding what the next safe place they should go to is, and decide that they're going to go to Warpath's now-destroyed reservation, they're attacked by everybody's favorite purple Dalzim, Cruel. Which brings us to X-Force number 15 with with a nice little Princess Bride reference in his title, is called To the Pain. Now, we've still got Alt Milgram on inks, but the penciler at this point is Greg Capullo, who's going to stay on with the book for the next year. And Capullo is a well-loved X-Force artist. He manages to get that action-y 90s feel that Liefeld also did, but with a draftsmanship and a storytelling skill that makes it really fucking work. This is sort of the definitive X-Force for me, or at least the definitive early good X-Force that Capullo is going to be drawing for the next 12-ish issues. X-Force comes together as a team, and they 
not cruel out and they throw him out of the ship very high in flight and he crashes down to the earth and they sort of say, well, you know, he's probably not dead because he's the kind of guy you can't kill that easily, but he's at least out of our hair for now. But before he's gone, someone brings up Sunspot and Cruel tells X-Force, The puppy you speak of, your former teammate, I believe, will soon be dog meat! Now, Cannonball decides- Cruel rules! Okay, I'm done. You sure? Cruel rules! Okay, now I'm really done. You want to do it one more time just for, just for symmetry? Cruel rules! Okay, now Cannonball decides that even though Sunspot isn't a member of their team, he is Cannonball's best friend, and he is one of the OG New Mutants, so they are gonna- Cannonball, at least, is gonna go rescue him, and the rest of the team basically says, look, we're all in this together, of course we're gonna go help you rescue your BFF and our former teammate, come on, Sam, who do you think we are, Cable? And the dialogue makes my heart sing, let's do the part with Warpath and Shatterstar. Alright, so Warpath says- with Cable gone, maybe dead, with no home to call our own, we're all we have left, Guthrie. And Shatty Buns replies, So a fight for one is a fight for all. I know it's all like badass and macho and stuff, but it's like when everyone does their awesome broy goodness in an action movie. It's just so wonderfully heartwarming. Yeah, no, this is this is the point where the Millennium Falcon shows back up even though Hansel is not getting paid for it. Exactly. It's wonderful. So, our newly united by bonds of friendship and by having almost everyone they know be dead, team heads toward Gideon's base. Now, Gideon sees them coming, and teleconference is in. In fact, Gideon's been expecting them, and what he tells them is that, well, they've got time to do one of two things. They can attack him, or they can rescue Sunspot, but they've don't got time for both. And he will give them Sunspot's location only if Sam swears to stay out of external business, which honestly kind of sounds like a win-win to me. Right? It's like, oh, I can not hang out with these strangely dressed, strangely prioritized, strangely named gentlemen who seem to have this game that they're obsessed with that nobody else really cares about? Okay. And they're all dicks, and Celine might be one of them, and Apocalypse sometimes might be one of them, and it's all confusing and stupid. But um, Sam makes the right choice, and they find Sunspot. Um, and Sunspot is 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 in the throes of science. Yeah, he's being pumped full of more energy stuff. And I like the way this is drawn. Now, we've seen Sunspot's powers a million times before. You know, he becomes a solid black silhouette with little Kirby dots around him. It's like that, but even more. There's just this golden, almost corona, almost halo all around him. And the Kirby dots just look more aggressive. I don't know, but it does really convey well that Sunspot is being powered up almost to the point where it's too much. So, when someone's in that situation, there are two things you need. You need to get them up and away from populated areas, like into the sky. And you need to make sure that the person's doing that is someone who, who can't be hurt if they explode. Say, someone who, while propelling themselves in the manner necessary to get them that high, might be invulnerable or at least nigh invulnerable. That's right. Our bro TP is going to be bro T awesome because Cannonball grabs Sunspot, flies into the sky, and they explode and it looks like they're dead. But of course, they're totally not dead because they have the power of friendship. And I guess also the blast field is probably relevant too. But mostly friendship. Mostly friendship. So it's great. It's a comic book. It can reasonably be assumed that friendship is as much, if not more, that more of, of the reason here than, than superpowers. 
So everybody turns to Sam for their next move. He's a natural leader, of course, and he used to co-lead the team with Mirage back in the day, but he's in over his head, which makes sense to me because the stuff the New Mutants dealt with, that stuff was weird and it was dark, but it was not this high-octane violence that he's encountering now. This is a new world for him. Okay, but that said, I would follow Sam Guthrie into hell. God, yeah, me too. I think they went to hell uh, at least a couple times. There was the thing where Mephisto and Magma were dating later on. Yeah, no, he's he's well qualified for that expedition. That's not the only reason. But but in general, like, he's he is the kind of guy you want leading your group because he will make those split-second d- decisions, but he also won't get so full of himself that he assumes that he's right just because the, it's the decision that he happened to have made. Absolutely, 100% agree. So, X-Force decides to go where they were thinking they would go before, just to regroup the Camp Verde Reservation in Arizona, where Warpath has been spending a lot of his time, and where the Hellfire Club seems to have killed a whole lot of people. And, yeah, so we've got maybe not the whole band back together, but enough of it that this really feels like a return to not the old status quo, and that's important. This is something new, but it's the old team, and it's the old heart of the book. It's not Cable yanking around a bunch of the characters, which is what it really felt like for a very, very long time. They're suddenly self-propelled and self-determined in ways they haven't been really yet in this title. Totally. But Cable is not out of the picture yet because he was a very popular character, so let's see what he and Vanessa have been up to. Well, Cable managed to catch Vanessa, who he still thinks is Domino at this point, and crawl up the side of a cliff because it's Cable before teleporting to Greymalk and his space station. I love that his space station is named after the street the X-Mansion was on. Like, he had those robot buds in the future named after the original five X-Men. Like, and of course he named, you know, the ship spirit with him Professor. Like, all the X-Factor stuff is coming back. Well, I guess Greymalkin was an X-Men thing, but... This makes so much sense to me. Think about the things that you remember and the bits and pieces that you remember from the stories your parents told you when you were little, like before you were 12, and the bits and pieces and words that stand out and how relatively disconnected the things that stick as important might be. And remember, this is this is the this is Cable who was raised by Scott and Jean in a future without books with only oral history with the the two of them basically trying to develop an oral history of where he came from, of the X-Men, and of the world that he was originally from, but at that point, as far as they knew, could never go back to. Yeah, it kind of reminds me of the original Guardians of the Galaxy ship. It was a ship called the Captain America because Vance Astro, who was the leader of the team, like, he grew up on Captain America. He was his hero, and so when he got shot far into the future, he's like, fuck it, I'm gonna homage the thing that means a lot to me. Vance Astro is a fucking terrific name. It was originally Vance Astrovic, but he shortened it. Kind of like how Stan Lieber became Stan Lee. Probably not for the same reasons. Well, probably for similar reasons. Maybe. But Cable cannot beam the kids up to Grey Malkin because of something-something electromagnetic interference something-something, so he figures they're going to be okay. In the meantime, he's got some shit to fuck up. Right. So he and Copycat, who's still posing as Domino, sneak into Tolliver's Italian hideout, discover the real Domino imprisoned there, and are immediately confronted by some asshole who sort of looks like Spider-Man. That's right, Deadpool reveals that Domino, quotation, quotation, has been a fake since she first showed up in Late New Mutants. The real Domino has been imprisoned the whole damn time, and Vanessa, she's horrified. She says she didn't know if she'd known that Domino was still alive. She never would have done this, but she doesn't have much time to feel guilty because Deadpool fucking kills her. 
uncool. And um, Tolliver commands Deadpool to go on and kill the quote-unquote forever cancer, which I guess is what he calls Cable. And um, they fight for a while, but Domino, whose powers involve ridiculous luck, is freed by a stray sword swing um, when Deadpool was, was posturing around, and she manages to shoot Deadpool. But wait, 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 we're forgetting the most important part of the fight, which is one of my favorite cable sort of word salad badass speeches. Right. Word salad badass is a good description for cable, and especially of this line. Um, go for it. No blades, no guns. Let's play this out mano a mano. Or maybe it'd be better put, mano a cabeza. My fist on your face till the fat lady sings. There's a lot going on there. There's so much going on there. I'm going to go ahead and say that Colossus did it much better. In the So you're a tough guy. I'm a tough guy. Let's do what tough guys do. And then he and the guy he's fighting kiss. That sounds about right. Is that from that, Ultimate? No, um, that's from a fairly recent issue of, I think, X-Men Gold, and they definitely don't kiss. Oh, well. Uh, but they should. I agree. Or like sit down and talk about their feelings. Like... Fight toxic masculinity, X-Men. You can be a tough guy and still reject senseless violence. You can. I mean, most don't, but you can. Anyway, Domino shoots Deadpool. He's not dead. He'll be back a million times. For that matter, so will Copycat. She's not fully dead either. I gotta say, though, I love the way that Greg Capullo draws Domino here because her costume has been really torn the fuck apart over her who-knows-how-long-of-captivity. Also, she's got really good muscle tone, like, given how much she's been in shackles, I'm impressed. Also, there's one panel where her face looks, like, unsettlingly close to Mag's Visaggio's, and it's really awesome. This whole thing is pretty awesome, and I love that Capullo, kind of like early Jim Lee, draws her, I mean, yeah, she's sexy and she's not wearing very much, but first and foremost, she's a fucking badass, and I like it because you don't see enough of that, especially in this era. Cable is 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 once again smitten with her and goes to to his, his place to go, which is just fucking nonsense for some pickup lines. I'd like nothing more right now than for us to do something private, something relaxing, something only the two of us could do together. Wait, like what? Because at first I thought he was talking about sex, but then he got to the something only the two of us could do together. And l unless they have, like, some kind of really specialized lock and key genitals going on, that's, that's, that's something a lot of different people can do in, in different combinations. So maybe, like, there's a card game that only they know the rules, of, the rules to that they made up? Well, maybe, but regardless of whether it's innuendo or just confusing, I like Domino's response. How about we go find Tolliver and blow his face off? Oh yeah, that's Domino, all right. Maybe that's what only the two of them could do together? I think it's charming. Strangely phrased, but charming. But it works because Cable and Domino jump onto Tolliver's helicopter, although Domino has to jump off once it starts getting really high, and they blow it the fuck up, leaving a trench coat fedora and Judge Doom-esque face mask floating on the sea. So they literally blow his face off. They do. It's implied it's a mask. It's kind of unclear. Tolliver in general is. Well, even if it's a mask, it's a face and it's his. Well, yes. So that totally counts. Yeah. And then, before he gets blown up, Cable body slides away from the explosion, which is fucking awesome. It's kind of like walking away from an explosion, not looking, but it involves more science fiction teleportation, and therefore I approve. And he tells Domino, meanwhile, to find X-Force and help them. 
And Domino, of course, has no idea who the hell X-Force is. She's not the Domino who's been with them. She's been in prison, presumably a prison with a really nice gym facility based on the fact that she's in very good shape. But yeah, so she figures, okay, I guess I'll do that. And that leads us into our brave new, genuinely exciting era of X-Force. Jay, I cannot wait for our next X-Force episode. Right. I am legitimately really excited. Not just because we're next going to go into Executioner's song. Oh shit, we totally are. That's our next X-Force episode when we get to that crossover. Yeah, we are We are on the cusp of Executioner's song. Oh boy. We're also on the cusp of awesome questions from awesome listeners. Cinnamon Candy Canes asks on Tumblr, I'm reading the... T- Trial of Gambit collection, and I'm wondering about this Joseph fellow. He looks a lot like Magneto and has the same power set, but his personality seems much gentler, and the other characters keep mentioning something about Onslaught and that Joseph has amnesia. I've also been told that he might be Magneto's clone. What's going on? Oh, boy. Okay, so Cinnamon Candy Canes, we have technically covered this before, but Joseph is confusing as hell. We're definitely going to cover it again, so it's probably just as well to just sort of go back over his origin every once in a while. After the Age of Apocalypse Survivor Holocaust, oh boy, that name, blew up Asteroid M, where Magneto was still comatose from that time Professor Xavier shut off his mind during Fatal Attractions, Magneto's body fell to Earth, and Astra grabbed it. Then, because she's a little off, she went ahead and cloned Magneto to make a younger clone with the same genetic code. She wanted those clones to fight and kill each other, but instead, both of them escaped. I guess Magneto got his mind back, and Joseph was confused and had no memories. He went off to hang out with some orphans and help them out. They named him Joseph, and then he wandered off and met up with the X-Men, who assumed that he was a re-de-aged Magneto, and maybe this time they could prevent him from being as evil and villainous. I love that you just said all of those things. X-Men. Anyway, eventually everybody figured out that he really was just a clone, and then he sacrificed himself to stop a bad thing that the real Magneto was doing, and then he died doing so, and then he got better, and then he went evil, and it, meh, whatever. But the point is, Joseph, they thought he was really Magneto de-aged, actually he was just a clone of Magneto, and the real Magneto was still around. And there you go. X-Men. Sailor Wentz asks on Tumblr, You mentioned a few times that the Marvel process changed to accommodate the new artists that Marvel wanted to showcase. With all of them leaving to found Image, did the process change back? When did it become what they work with today? Okay, so when we talk about traditional Marvel style, I kind of want to recap what that is quickly first. That's where the writer writes a synopsis of of just the, the plot. The artist draws the pages of the issue based on that, and the writer goes back in and adds dialogue. That was traditionally the style Marvel books were created in, and it's still what's referred to as Marvel style, although it hasn't been required there for a very, very long time. So basically, the answer to your question is, it depends. It's rarely a formal shift when something like that happens. Rather, it it just, it shifts organically depending on creative and um, publishing dynamics. And at this point, modern modern day Marvel, um, it depends a lot on both the office and creative team, as it does with most publishers. So they they don't require Marvel style work anymore, um, and it's it's really based on individual creative dynamics. And those those again those policies and preferred styles depend a ton in comics on the specific creative team and who's working together. Often Marvel style is something you'll go to if you're working on a very tight schedule or if you're a writer and artist team 
who know each other's styles very well, who trust each other implicitly, and who want to basically both have a lot of input into the story. Now, we are a fully listener-supported podcast, and certain levels of support come with on-air acknowledgement from a variety of fictional characters and or concepts. We will start, as we so often do, with the angry Claremontian narrator. Your plan was airtight, Alexandra Segade. Every turn mapped out, every twist accounted for. But could you have anticipated the betrayal of Valerie Mott? You know, if you'd tried harder, you probably could have. Bet you feel pretty silly now, don't you? And the mic at this point goes to... Sexy Cable. In the surprisingly large bathtub from X-Force number 6, Domino, the only limits to the private and relaxing things we can do are our imaginations. And the apocalyptic future that will soon eviscerate this reality. Once I find you in this unbelievably endless bathtime ocean... I'll show you all the most sensual applications of the techno-organic virus. I'll set my guns to caress. Ah, there you- No, that's Chuck Hale. How did you bypass security, Chuck? Ugh, okay. I think I see you, Domino. Past these disappointingly inert bath bombs. Wait. Terran Van Zylen? You body slide by one right back out of this tub! Domino? I will find you, and I will be a gentle and sensitive lover. And no one in this timeline, or any other, can stop me. And with that, Jay and Miles explain the X-Men is recorded in Forest Hills, New York, and Portland, Oregon, and produced by Matt Hunter. New episodes of our show, where doing the cable voice kind of messes with my throat, whoa, come out every Sunday on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and at explainthexmen.com. And now you know how it feels to do feral. Check out explainthexmen.com for all kinds of extra content, including visual companions to every episode. Our show is totally listener-supported. Thank you all so much. If you'd like to help us stay on the air and stay ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. Next week, Excalibur gets very... Excalibury, as we learn the secret history of the Phoenix Force, flashback to Captain Britain's days with Spider-Man, and see the crazy gang set loose. And everyone turns into dinosaurs. Kind of. Ma'am, 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 Mitchell. What would your mama say? Watch the ribs! If she ever knew that you were crawling out and carrying on that way, cracking in heads and jumping in and out of beds and hanging around the criminal scene, do you think you are some kind of a star like the guys on the movie screen? <laughs> <laughs>